Okay, I hope everybody's got a study sheet. Uh, again, we're going to start off with our map, and we're going to look at uh, some different, uh, finish up the, the, the nations that were being discussed. Uh, you know, we've looked at Aram or the Aramean uh, kingdoms, which the center is in Damascus. We looked at the northern kingdom, Samaria, of course. We've looked at Philistia. Today, we're going to look at Tyre. Tyre is a kingdom in what is now modern-day Lebanon. It would be Sidon today. Tyre originally was on an island, okay? It was an island. The reason why they, could, they, they were very boastful that nobody could get them because the armies would maraud through. Well, it's, it, it's a fortress city out in, out in the bay. No way to get out there. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment uh, because... Uh, they were humbled later on. Of course, Egypt, we talked about Cush, which is uh, Sudan, Ethiopia. Today, we're going to look at Arabia. We've already talked about the desert by the sea. That would be the Gulf State regions. And, of course, Babylon. We've already discussed that. So let's look together. We're, I'm not going to read the passages to you, but we're going to focus on chapter 21, verse 13, through chapter 23, verse 18. So let's talk about Arabia. Now, let me just remind you, God is pronouncing judgment not just on his people or giving them promises, but he's also pronouncing judgment on all of these nations around Israel, around the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah, because they're the ancient enemies of, of Israel, okay? So they're not going to be off the hook, especially with the Assyrian Empire that's coming. And that red area that I'm showing you here, that red area is the Assyrian Empire, okay? So let's talk about this now. So let's talk about Arabia. <clears throat> That's verses 13 through 17. Uh, this oracle discusses the difficult times that Arabia will experience at the hands of the Assyrians. So what you're going to see there in those few verses, it's going to kind of outline a little bit. It's going to give you a little bit of a picture of the difficult times that Arabia, the people of Arabia, are going to experience because of the Assyrian Empire. Within one year, the glory of Arabia will fail and their soldiers will diminish. So when Assyria turns its attention to get rid of Arabia, it's only going to take a year, and whatever strength they had as far as an army is going to disappear. All right? So that's what the prophet is saying. Now, when you get to chapter 22, verses 1 to 25, the focus now turns back to Jerusalem. Okay, so sometimes the prophecy intersperses the judgment on the nations around them, but brings it back home, okay? And so it's going to bring it back home in verses 1 to 25 of chapter 22 of Jerusalem. And so here's what happens, okay? First of all, in chapters 22, verses 1 to 14, there's a valley of vision. So the prophet questions the joy that Jerusalem is exhibiting on its rooftops. Now, what does that mean, joy on the rooftops? Well, first of all, their roofs are different here okay, than here. We have pitched roofs. You know, not very many things build flat roofs around here, okay? Uh, it's because of the weather. You know, when snow comes, what, lays on the roof? 
and you always have a problem with a flat roof. We know that here at our church. We have a flat roof. We have problems with our flat roof, okay? Even though we make do everything we can to do what we can with it, you still will have problems. In Palestine, Israel, everything's got a flat roof. And what they would do is, is whenever they had their festivals, all of the people would come from all over into Jerusalem, and they were used to having people in their homes, and they would even tent out on top of these rooftops, okay? They would have a place for them to stay, and that would be where all the festivities would take place and everything. So the prophet is wondering, you know, what's this joy that you guys are exhibiting on your rooftops? You're acting like everything's okay, like there's no problem. The prophet sees slain men who are killed by the siege rather than the sword. What do you mean the siege? Well, in those days, uh, basically towns, villages were within walled areas. Now, why did they have walls? Keep the attackers out. So, for instance, like here in Kerwinsville, we would have a huge wall starting just over at the boundary there, going all the way over across the river, you know what I'm saying, into the south side to make sure we would keep the marauders out of Kerwinsville. And you'd have guards who would be ready to sound the alarm, you know what I'm saying? And this is what they would do back then. But here's what happens. When you come against it, let's say Clearfield invades uh, Kerwinsville, when they come against it, they would lay siege. They would surround the city and not allow anybody to come in, meaning there's no way to get food in. After a while, the food runs out. If there's no source of water, guess what happens? No source of water, you would lose water, you start to die of thirst. And so the prophet is seeing men who are slain, men who are killed, who died from the siege rather than from the sword, not from battle, but because they starved to death on the inside. And that's what the Assyrians are going to do. Their leaders will escape only to be captured. Now, this is a prophecy. So what's he talking about? They'll escape only to be captured. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 to 8, you're going to hear a story about when Babylon surrounds the city this is for the future, and is coming against them. The king of Judah is going to try to escape, and he escapes the city only to be captured later by the Babylonian forces. And then that king is brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. He has his sons killed in front of him, and then they put his eyes out, carried him away to Babylon in chains. That's how brutal they were. And so this is a prophecy. Now remember, this is a prophecy 200 years before that happens. Okay? And so this is what's going to happen with Jerusalem. Isaiah agrees because of what he sees concerning Jerusalem. It bothers Isaiah. You know what I'm saying? It bothers Isaiah. Well, think about it for a moment. We're not big in the visions here, but let's say all of a sudden you started having a week-long series of nightmares about what happens on your street and about people dying and so forth, would that bother you? And then God says, this is what I'm going to do. Well, you guys live on Barn. This is what I'm going to do on Barn Street. 
that would bother you, right? Because they live on Barnes Street in Clearfield. He's bothered by these prophecies that he's seeing because it's the people that he loves. It's, it's, it's his, he lives in Jerusalem. It's his home area. So he's bothered by what he sees because he knows judgment is coming. Okay? Judgment is coming. So Isaiah sees the valley filled with invading armies coming against the city. So Jerusalem, so whenever you read the scripture, they said, let us go up to the temple, okay? Jerusalem was on, like in most, in a, in a strategic sense, was up on hills. And so let us go up, meaning let's go up, you got to climb up to get to Jerusalem. So what he sees is, is around Jerusalem, there are all these valleys, but these valleys are going to be filled with invading armies because they're going to be besieged, Okay. They're going to be besieged. So here's what he sees. Judah sees, Isaiah sees the destruction of Jerusalem. Now this isn't going to happen with the Assyrians. It's going to happen with the Babylonians. But he just said the Babylonians are going to be defeated by the Assyrians. But the Babylonians obviously are going to rise back up. And then they're going to destroy, as we know they did, on three different occasions, destroy Jerusalem. So the point is, is God calls for weeping and mourning, but Judah lived for the moment in spite of the impending destruction. All right, so here's what God's saying. Guys, you need to be weeping. You need to be mourning because of what's coming. But rather than being bowing down in repentance, and asking God to be merciful, what do they do? They just live for the moment. Do you, you know what I'm saying? They're just living for themselves in spite of what's happening. You know what I'm saying? In spite of what's happening. I remember one time I had a discussion with somebody. This is back in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, was talking with a guy. And around that time, there were a lot of financial books being written about the income, the income, the Coming Financial Collapse, okay? Do you guys remember those books back there in the late 80s, early 90s? And I was, I was having a discussion with this guy, and I said, so what are you doing? Are you, like, trying to get your debt load under control or whatever? He said, no, if it's coming, it's coming. So let's go spend more money while we can. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, let's just gather more debt. Do you know what I'm saying? Because... When it comes, they're going to take everybody's stuff away. Might as well enjoy it now. What an attitude. Same attitude that Jerusalem has. Rather than mourning, because it's, why is it going to happen to Jerusalem? Because of their sin. Rather than mourning and dealing with their sin, turning back to the Lord, oh, we're just going to live for the moment. We're going to enjoy it while we can. You know what I'm saying? That's really a very secular attitude to have, Okay. It's really an anti-God attitude to have. You know, live for today because there's no tomorrow. So the Lord proclaimed that there would be no atonement for the sin of not trusting him. Not trusting him. What is that? That's unbelief. There's no atonement for the sin of unbelief. Period. Would you say that's true? Even with Jesus coming and dying for us, 
would you say that there's no atonement? Do you understand what I mean by atonement? Atonement is the sacrifice being made on behalf of someone's sin, absolving them from their sin, okay? Satisfying the wrath of God. He's saying because they're not trusting him, they're not believing, okay? So unbelief. Basically, he's describing an unforgivable sin here, right? All right? Is that true? Do you think that's true? Yeah, Bruce says yes, okay? All right. So let's talk about it for a moment because sometimes I hear people, especially when they're younger in the faith, they'll struggle with, you ever had somebody say, I'm afraid that I committed the unpardonable sin? You ever heard that one? Yeah, some of you have nodded. Yes, you've heard that. Have you heard that, Bruce? Yeah, okay. Usually when they say that, they're talking about some sin issue in their life. Okay? And where it comes from is when Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cannot be forgiven. And what was the whole issue of blaspheming the Holy Spirit there in the Gospels? It was they were attributing the works of Jesus to Satan. Okay? And so blaspheming the Holy Spirit was saying that Jesus was doing this in the power of Satan. It was an expression of unbelief. And so therefore Jesus says, because of that, that's blasphemy. Blaspheming God, the unbelief, that's not forgivable. So is it possible for a believer to commit an unpardonable, unforgivable sin? Is it? Oh, Sam says no. No, there is no sin that you and I as believers can commit that is unforgivable. Because the unforgivable sin is what? Unbelief, not trusting in the Lord, right? Okay? Now, listen, sometimes we get influenced by the doctrine of other groups. So, for instance, Roman Catholic theology says that there are... Uh, very serious sins, mortal sins that are committed that are not forgivable, such as suicide and other things like that. Scripture doesn't give that delineation. Okay? There's only one sin that's not forgivable. What's that? Unbelief. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 20, in the final section of verses, where it talks about the great white throne judgment, talks about all the dead will be raised up, the sea will give up the dead. Hades will give up the dead. They'll all be pure before the Lord. All the books will be opened. And that's talking about the record of their lives. And they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Why? Because <clears throat> their bad deeds outnumbered their good deeds? Yeah, unbelief. Because their names were not written in what book? The book of life. Do you understand? So this is what Isaiah is saying. The Lord proclaimed there's no atonement for the sin of not trusting him, of, of unbelief. There's no atonement for that, okay? Now, let me just stop for a because i got to quiet. Well, you know, George, but sometimes I struggle with unbelief. Sometimes I, I don't trust God to handle a situation. You mean that's not forgivable? I'm not talking about you having doubts. I'm not talking about that. What do you mean, George? Well, what I'm trying to say is this. Sometimes 
you may have a problem trusting that God's going to show up in your instance, but you still trust him, right? You're still trusting in him for other areas of your life. You're still, you still pray and talk to him, but you're just having a hard time trusting him to handle this. I think we know what that's like, you know what I'm saying? You know, you know what I'm saying? So like, Lori leaves a list of things for me to do. I'll take care of them. And, uh, you know, she's lived with me long enough now to know, really? I sent him to the grocery store with this list. Which items will he bring back and which ones will he forget, even though he has a list? So she's got a little bit of an unbelief issue with me. Now, does she still believe in me and love me and care? Yes. But she struggles with, okay, I gave George a list. Is he even going to pay attention? Will he lose my list? Will he leave it in the car and go into Walmart and buy stuff and then come back in and say, oh, there's the list, but I'm not going to go back in. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Th this is the same thing. When we talk about unbelief, we're talking about the rejection of God. Do you understand? So you having a doubt isn't that you're rejecting God. Do you understand? It's the choice of not to believe that he even exists, to even trust in him. So there would be no atonement for the sin of not trusting him. So then what happens is, now this is amazing. He gives in his prophecy, he talks about two individuals, a guy by the name of Shibna, and another guy by the name of Eliakim. Now this is in... Uh, chapter 22, verses 15 to 25. So he's going to pronounce a judgment. These guys aren't even on the scene yet. But he's going to pronounce a judgment, but they serve as examples to us. Okay, so let's talk about Shibna. Shibna was a high court official to the king of Judah. So there's going to be this guy, and he did exist, who was a high court official to the king of Judah. So somebody in the upper echelon, maybe a cabinet minister, somebody, okay, if you're thinking about our form of government, okay, some high court official in the kingdom of Judah. He's singled out by the prophet for judgment. So God's going to illustrate a point here. He's going to illustrate a point by pronouncing judgment on this high court official. Isaiah proclaims, rather than being important, Shibna will suffer humiliation and defeat. So he's going to be humiliated and defeated in his position. Not necessarily killed, but he's going to be losing his pomp and circumstance, his position. Okay? Now, Eliakim will fill the vacated position of Shibna. So now we get to Eliakim. Eliakim, though, is going to be raised up, God says, to take over his position. Okay? Take over his position. By the way, if you're reading this years later, and you're the guy Shibna, and you're reading that God says, you're going to fail, would that bother you? Yeah, if you believe. But if you don't believe, people write stuff all the time, right? Okay? Just that prophet, you know. So Eliakim will fill the vacated position. He will be respected in the country and bring honor to his family. 
Now, here's how their culture worked. When you did something, ultimately, whatever you did was to bring honor to your family. Now, we used to operate that way, didn't we? You didn't do certain things because of what it would, would say about your family. Okay, We've, Our culture has changed that. We're somewhat still like that, okay? But not like this. So he gets a position, high-honored position. He's respected in the country. He brings honor to his family. And, and God says his position in Judah will be secure, meaning he doesn't have to worry. Nobody's going to get rid of him. He's not going to be humiliated like Shibna. He's going to be secure. However, the Lord follows up with another statement. Yet one day, security will fail in the day of judgment. One day, okay, you're going to be secure in your position, but there's a limit to that because one day, guess what's coming, guys? The day of judgment to come. That's what's going to happen. And nobody will be secure then, right? Nobody will be secure. All right, so that brings us to Tyre. That's in chapter 23, verses 1 to 18. So I remember I told you at the beginning that Tyre was this Sidon was it was an area a kingdom but the main center of the kingdom was on an island off the coast of what is we now know as Lebanon and they were pretty arrogant and boastful okay because who's going to mess with them you know what I'm saying invading armies didn't have ships to go and take care of to grab this island okay well God's got a judgment for them and I'm going to tell you what happened in history here in a moment, okay? So the first thing I want you to notice is the prophet calls the merchant ships to wail at the news of the city's destruction. Tyre was a very wealthy city nation. Why? Well, they're on the, on the sea. They have ports. What do you get at ports? Merchants who bring what? who bring goods from all over the world, and they bring them through your port. So therefore, you can what? You can tax them. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? You get a cut of whatever they're bringing in. They're bringing you the best of everywhere. Gold from here, wheat from here. I mean, everything is coming there. And, and that made them boast. They had lots of money. And here the merchants did lots of business through them. It was like a great place to do business. And so the prophet calls the merchant ships to wail at the news of the city's destruction. The nations will mourn as they are affected by the fall of Tyre. So when you've got this commercial hub, that's what it was, and it's destroyed, that's going to affect everybody else, right? Okay? It's going to have an impact. The people of Tarshish will, are to wail because they will be affected as well. Now, where was Tarshish? Tarshish, if you look, think about the Mediterranean world, about the Mediterranean, they think Tarshish was over near Spain. So merchants were coming from that far over to come to Tyre to deliver their goods. And so as far as Tarshish, they're going to be wailing and, and, and uh, so forth. And the Lord Almighty has planned the humbling of this city. Let me tell you how he humbled the city. There once was this great 
Empire huge figure by the name of Alexander the Great. Do you guys know Alexander the Great? Of course, when Alexander the Great came from Greece, he defeated the Medo-Persian Empire. He was coming down, heading towards Egypt. Of course, he's defeating everything in its path. He comes to Tyre. Of course, they make the mistake of mocking him. You're not going to get us. We're out here. Who cares how big your army is? Blah, blah, blah. Okay? So guess what Alexander the Great does? This was ingenious. Of course, when you maraud and capture everything, you make everybody there a slave, right? So what he did was is he had his, these workers now, these slaves that he has, to tear down all the buildings on the shore and bring rocks and everything, and they filled in the gap between the shore and the island. And they're expendable. Oh, you can only have so many arrows to shoot. And so you knock off a couple hundred slaves that day. Yeah, but you lost how many arrows in the process, right? You're losing your ammunition. And so what happened is, is that even to this day, it's not an island anymore. The foundation going out to the island are all these broken down buildings. And guess what? When that happened, Alexander the Great's army went in and destroyed the place. He humbled this boastful city. It's an amazing story. And the Lord Almighty planned the humbling of this city. Now let's get back to Tyre. Tyre will have no more protection than the Babylonians did against Assyria. No more protection than the Babylonians did against the Assyrian Empire. His whole point is, just like Babylon got destroyed by the Assyrians, you guys are going to get destroyed as well. And they did. They did. The prophet foresees a time when Tyre will turn to the Lord. Now, we've already seen this with some of the other nations. And so I want you to understand, yes, these are enemies of Israel, but God foretells that these very enemies will one day come and what? Bow down before him and worship him. They will bring honor to him. When will that be? The millennial kingdom. When Jesus comes back and establishes the kingdom, all the nations of the world will what? Come and worship him there. Tyre will be one of those nations. Okay? Tyre will be one of those nations. Tyre will once again become a trading center. So he's giving them hope. Yeah, you're doing all this. You're arrogant. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped out. You're going to be humbled. But one day you will come and you will worship and you will once again be a trading center in this world. <clears throat> the prophets of Tyre will be set apart for the Lord. Okay, so you look at Lebanon. Lebanon, uh, even though they're on the verge of civil war again, okay, there, there is some sort of commerce there. I doubt that people are setting aside that money for the worship of the Lord, right? They're prophets for that? No, but in the millennial kingdom, they're going to be setting it aside for who? The, the Lord, the true king. So that brings us to the end of this section. Now, next week, uh, we're going to get into punishment and blessing. Isaiah is going to talk about a time of punishment, 
of judgment, and we're also going to see a time of blessing for the Lord's people. Okay, so again, this is prophetic concerning what's going to happen.